0: To FinTech Newscast. My name is John, and with me, as always, is Steve. How are you doing? Uh, I'm I'm well, John. I'm doing actually really well. How are you? Good, good. You you almost hesitated there. So
1: everything okay? Uh it's 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 okay. It's fine.
0: Yes, it's good. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. All right. Well, you you should be you should be happy. You should be excited. Uh, we have a great guest uh, with us this week, Omid Malikan, an adject Adjunct Professor at Columbia Business School and author of his new book *Rearchitecting Trust: The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms*. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, let, let's start off with uh, something uh, around the hype. I, I, I think a little bit. Um, what well, what is it about cryptocurrencies and and maybe blockchain in general uh, that makes people so? uh intensely focused on it so um wh- what's the word you had steve religious
1: fervor what what is it about religious about, about currency that, that inspires what? yeah so much religious fervor among
2: its uh adherents religious fervor is a good way to describe it and i think it's because <laughs> crypto comprises of a few different things it's sort of the cutting edge of technology it is a kind of currency or money and then ultimately what it's all about is creating new kinds of communities. So when you combine those things together, they tend to elicit strong passions in people, both pro and con.
0: We've definitely seen um, some of the cons and uh, uh, there's so, so many issues on, on, uh, on both sides of that. Uh, what are the most important pros? I think the number one pro is that this is, as the title of my
2: new book indicates, a new way to build trust or a way to upgrade some of our existing trust frameworks. And the reason why we need to do that now is that so many of the different ways that we as a society come to trust each other in applications like tech or money or banking, it all predates the digital era. Uh, even things like fintechs for example that in many ways look like they use the cutting edge of technology which of course they do the architecture of how they move money and value around just to use one example is actually not that different from how people have been moving money and value around for a very long time and What's interesting about the internet is that it breaks all of these paradigms for all the reasons that everyone's pretty familiar with by now, but just to go over a few simple ones, things that we might take for granted, but like uh, the internet doesn't care about borders. Most of our financial system, however, our traditional financial system is built around domestic markets that then have these weak links across um, national borders. The internet also runs 24-7. Anyone who comes from the world of banking knows that almost nothing in banking at the core of the infrastructure actually runs on 24-7. That's why we have terms like bankers' hours and bankers' holidays. Or, so, or
1: three to five business days, right? It, 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 it always takes forever to, to settle any sort of
2: transaction. Right. And, and even that idea, like this idea that if you're sending someone a payment or buying stocks on Robinhood, uh, all you're doing is just swapping data inside different databases, but somehow that process could take like two days and it matters whether one of those days is a Friday or a Saturday. These are all throwbacks of the uh, old architecture of the world, which was built around the time where there was, we didn't have digital communication. There was a lot of manual processing. People would do the things that computers could do today. So. First and foremost, I think the biggest pro of crypto in general is that it is natively digital. It's a technology that starts with the assumption that everyone's connected, which most people are, that everybody has some kind of a computing device, like a computer or a smartphone, which most people do. Uh, and then it embraces like the informational nature of things like financial assets like money or stocks.
1: John and I actually cut our teeth sort of in the world of of neobanks and consumer banking um, and it seems like those banks have been able to develop solutions that have been as you say digitally native right they don't rely on mainframes um, and that have a more uh, they have a more flexible technical architecture which allows them to deploy more interesting use cases. Um, what's the argument of, against um, having taken that same approach of basically hauling over all the existing system systems now in the global financial system and just making it run faster, constant, um, a, a, you know, and and sort of and and have all those all those um, knock-on effects as opposed to moving from where we are now to blockchain.
2: So I think actually neo banks. Uh, have done a wonderful job of being sort of like a halfway point. Uh, the next step is actually for neo banks to embrace blockchain. Uh, and I'm not one of these people, like some crypto advocates think that it's only a matter of time until all the new fangled blockchain crypto stuff overthrow all the traditional solutions. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the future is actually the merger of the two, where a lot of the existing incumbents that are already pretty good at what they do, just embrace the technology or public blockchain networks to take their service to the next level. But to address your question head on, uh, I'll give you a few examples of why even the best neobanks are constrained. Um, For example, uh, neobanks, like all banks, rely on legal identity to onboard users. Part of that's because laws and regulations force them to do that. They have to do what traditional banks had to do, which is what we call KYC or know know your client. Mm -hmm. And part of that is like, that's how we envision a financial system to work, that there's something called an account and that account is registered to either a person or a corporation or government that exists as a legal entity. Um, Crypto, in part because Orange was meant to be decentralized and exist outside any legal system, uses a completely different way to identify users, which is cryptographic identity. And there are certain aspects of cryptographic identity that I think are just better, full stop. Uh, First of all, anybody anywhere can have cryptographic identity. So even if you are Um, In a country that has no real good legal identity infrastructure, you know, like you don't have driver's license and passports, or you're some kind of a marginalized community that your oppressive government intentionally denies legal identity. Um, The beauty of something like Bitcoin or DeFi is that nobody can prevent anybody from generating a key pair and accessing the infrastructure. And then as we
0: move on to But hasn't China done that? They've prevented- people from accessing any of these benefits so if there's a repressive government or if the government wants to control or ban it uh they they can right
2: they can try i mean this is all digital and relies on the internet for example so if you do have a totalitarian government that controls almost every bit of data that goes through the internet then yeah like bitcoin doesn't do anything for those people but um, as we know, in places like China, there are still many workarounds for certain people, like using VPNs and stuff. Uh, but it's not. this is not a, an argument of, like, it's not a binary thing that governments absolutely can or cannot impose restrictions. It's just that uh, with something like the cryptographic identity that crypto uses governments would have to resort to fairly draconian restrictions on how people access the internet to prevent someone from using it. Uh, And in in most Western-style democracies, they're not going to do that for many reasons, including that it would be completely illegal. And just to to finish the thought, as we're moving into this world of internet of things, uh, which you guys probably actually know more about than I do, but we talk about like cars having wallets and your refrigerator being able to buy milk and pay for it. Um, The cryptographic key based identity is actually perfect for that kind of thing. Like it's a lot easier to actually give your car or your refrigerator a wallet with a private key that it can use to sign transactions. Uh, than it is to try to make them somehow interact with a neo bank that's used to only having an account that's registered to jane smith
1: mm, to 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 an actual person yeah on the topic of identity as well um there's this notion that um essentially and i think this this is a is a, a theme that runs throughout your book is the idea of trust right how could you place trust on a technology that you know with the right tools you could actually you know, in some cases, approximate the identity of somebody's wallet based on their transaction. So imagine that, you know, one famous, one famous example is that I go on a date with somebody, um, although I'm married, so that, that wouldn't be the case. Huh? But say I go on a date with somebody <laughs> 20 years ago um, and, and somehow we end up splitting the bill and they see my, my wallet account. And then from that, they can also see every other past and future transaction. Isn't that a major flaw in the system? And sort of wouldn't that also erode the idea of trust? if anybody with access to my wallet could potentially piece together enough information to find out every transaction that I've made. Um, and and also, and I guess a second point to that question is, are there any efforts to, to mitigate the risk of that happening as well? Uh,
2: to answer the second part, yes. There are um, a lot of different interesting projects working on increasing privacy of transaction data, because as, uh, most people may know by now, when you look at something like the Bitcoin blockchain, it is shockingly transparent. Every single transaction back to the beginning of time is visible for not just the users to see, but for literally anybody who has access to the public internet. Um, So I I think that privacy solutions will improve. Uh, The question then is how they intersect with things like laws about illicit use and and anti-money laundering, which is a whole other conversation. But since you put it in the context of trust, um, I would add that there are actually few trust-building tools that are more potent than transparency. Uh, if you think about like what makes a government trustworthy or what makes a company trustworthy, what makes anything trustworthy, transparency really goes a long way to building Um, confidence between two different counterparties and transparency is the default state in crypto in a way that it's not the default state in almost anything else. And to go back to what we were just talking about, like with neobanks and stuff like that, a lot of the data in the existing financial system is hoarded by the companies that operate within it. Um, And is often inaccessible. In fact, if anybody who's ever worked at a big bank knows, as I used to, like a lot of times, even the bank itself doesn't know how to access a lot of the data, does not have a clear real-time snapshot of what's happening in terms of like client flows or leverage or financial activity. So I think crypto is actually better in that instead of starting from a place of opacity, where then a regulator or government shows up and says, hey... You have to make, uh, you know, like update the the central bank on a daily basis about your reserves or file a quarterly report with the SEC to tell us what's going on. In crypto, the default state is everybody gets to see everything. And then clever innovators get to uh, build solutions on top of that, that increase privacy.
1: So that's all good for the enterprise space, but what about for consumers? What's the how do I build trust then if, if people can see my wallet and see every transaction that I made it, and and they can see going back to the to the data example that for example I'm dating somebody else, I've gone on three dates this week, um, <laughs> I pay for somebody's Uber, right? How do we then build trust in that context?
2: So the uh, highly frictional way to do it is that the anybody can have as many wallets and 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 addresses and keepers as they want so this is actually really annoying to do but you could just literally uh generate a new address for every single transaction and there are wallets that make this easier for you to do so that's what i mean by like the default state is transparency but there are ways to mask it but i Mm -hmm. actually think this is an area where i disagree with most people who are passionate about crypto I do think this technology will eventually be everywhere and it will really revolutionize money markets and platforms. But I don't think most people are going to have that different of an experience than they do today. So in a future state where you are going on a date and paying with crypto or, or maybe a stable coin or something, I actually think most people in that future will still use a wallet that looks a hell of a lot like their Venmo wallet. And in fact, might very well be uh, a wallet made by Venmo or PayPal or Coinbase or their bank or maybe the government. And I think the real value of crypto is that it can provide trust at, at the core infrastructure layer. But then clever innovators and fintech entrepreneurs and neobanks, could build solutions on top of that infrastructure where theirs are the ones interacting with the blockchain on the back end or doing it on your behalf. And the user experience, which includes the level of privacy, is almost exactly like
0: what we experience today. So, do you think over the long term, uh, those uh, uh, services and, and well, banking uh, uh, will be who, who builds the better wallets and the features on top of something? like a a central bank digital currency? Will it end up having to be a a central bank? It's quite possible.
2: Um, Almost every central bank is currently doing some level of research or at least thinking about issuing a CBDC. The Federal Reserve uh, and the US is actually uh, pretty late on this. China is practically going live with its own solution now Um, The European Central Bank has basically committed to a digital euro sometime in the next five years. And most of the thinking and research has veered towards using some kind of a blockchain-like solution, meaning um, it will borrow many features. Like I think they will use a um, key-based identity infrastructure because one of the main drivers, like, like the good drivers for CBDCs is to give access to digital financial services for the unbanked, because as great as fintechs are, almost all of them are built on the existing banking system. So if you don't have a bank account, you probably can't use a fintech. Um, And as cash is disappearing, physical cash from the economy, a lot of governments are saying, you know, cash is sort of like a public good. It serves this important social purpose that anyone from the richest to the poorest, local citizens, foreigners, visitors, they can all use cash equally. Um, that's not true for a credit card, for example, or e-money. So a CBDC would preserve that public good. And because we want to make sure everybody has to have access to it, we'll probably use some of these uh, blockchain-y components, even though it won't be nearly as decentralized as something like a Bitcoin um, and the other benefit of using a crypto-like solution is uh, you can introduce something like smart contracts, which then introduces programmability to a CBDC. So that's a long-winded, long-winded way of saying yes, definitely. I think many central banks will come out with CBDCs and they will want to make them programmable so people can do things like build innovations and DeFi and other infrastructure on top of the CBDC. That's the good stuff. The bad stuff is everything that I just described also gives central banks a level of control over how people use money that they've never had before. So I think it remains to be seen how carried away central banks get with some of those control levers. And if they do make them too overbearing, will people actually use them or will they opt out and then decide that this sort of like validates why you need decentralized money like Bitcoin in the first place?
0: Yeah, it really increases that uh, government centralization uh, and China, like you're saying is a lead on this and they can just shut off your wallet or in some cases, I think they've been using the, um, the COVID vaccine code uh, to restrict people's movements. They just flip your, mm. uh, your status to red and you're 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 stuck. you can't go anywhere, and you have a lot of restrictions on you. Um, so that's uh, that's that's something that uh, a central bank would be able to do uh, in that case. And yeah, and it kind of defeats the purpose of that, well, the idealism, if not so much the uh, the the stated purpose of of Bitcoin in the first place to be to be free of those restrictions and to have a a, a trustless system
2: indeed uh, and there are actually certain there's a certain kind of bitcoin skeptic who argues that oh well we're going to get cbdcs and the existence of cbdcs will eliminate the appeal of bitcoin i really disagree with that i actually think the existence of cbdcs will increase the appeal of bitcoin because there's there's a scenario that you just described which is kind of scary enough but then there's also like the just a it doesn't sound as nefarious, but if you think about the monetary policy implications of a CBDC, uh, like in in many places, including Europe and Japan, up until not that long ago, they tried negative interest rates and negative interest rates generally did not work in part because the way monetary policy is done today is the uh, central bank sets rates for the commercial banks and then they hope the rates up or down, pass on through to the consumer. Uh, With negative interest rates, a lot of European Japanese banks refuse to pass them on to their clients because they said, like, you know, we are bank; We can't do that. With a CBDC, though, the government, should they dictate that it's the smart thing to do, could just program your money to disappear. Like, literally say that, okay, going forward, um, you know, X amount of your wallet balance will just shrink every day or every hour or every second. Uh, and there'll be lots of smart Nobel Prize-winning economists who will argue that's for the greater good because we need uh, you know, inflation or stimulus or deflation or whatever. But that goes so far beyond what. It'd you would be riots in, in the
0: streets. Stated. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So, it, it, I, I'm and a lot of the Western central banks kind of play coy on this topic. They're like, yeah, they might be interesting policy implications, but. That's not what we care about. You know, in Europe, they want to get rid of Visa and MasterCard and really have like free-flowing payments across borders. and other central banks want innovation or they don't have good fintech infrastructure. But I think if I was any kind of a central banker, I would be chomping at the bit at the opportunity to have money that I can just dictate how and when and how much it's used.
1: That's, that's the, uh, a lot of control. You, you actually have a quote in your book, um, I think it's from um, Janet Yellen, where she professes uh, a lot of skepticism about crypto in general, but, but it seems like there's now a movement to which is say sort of embrace at least the idea of creating a national CBDC. And I'm wondering, um, what, when do you think um, c- central banks, both in the US and abroad, will eventually adopt, and to what extent will they, the idea of crypto as a way to control the, um, the way in which, say, things like payments happen.
2: So what China is doing is putting a lot of political pressure on the West. Uh, in fact, in America, the, the Fed generally, one, the Fed's not a very innovative central bank. Like many other countries have had fast and real-time payment systems for years, if not longer, and we're still waiting for Fed now, which is why some people joke it's like Fed when. But <laughs> what... China's doing has put a, has, this issue is ultimately a political issue and, and it won't be central bankers that decide whether a CBDC issue is issued or not. It will be like presidents and legislatures and the U S for example, there are certain members of Congress that are already marching the, you know, they're like beating the, Oh, China's beating us in the technological arms race and a digital currency will, will let them leap ahead. And they They've put pressure on the Fed and send letters and in congressional testimonies ask uh, Chairman Powell about it. But I do think America will be among the last to do this. You know, we also have the uh, benefit of being the world's reserve currency, which means we don't have to do much and people still use our money. I think other countries are going to uh, say mid-level countries and this is probably part of Europe's plan use the CBDC to expand the appeal of their currency as a reserve currency. It's definitely a part of China's plan. They almost explicitly said so because despite China's size and prominence in the global economy, the Yuan accounts for something like 2% of global reserves. So they think, hey, if we get a digital Yuan and then we start trading with it or pricing some of our goods in it, then we'll have more adoption. Uh, and then I, I should say, like, I think in the next five years, we will see a lot of smaller countries view CBDCs as a technological leapfrog. Um, like the sort of like how a lot of countries didn't have good landline infrastructure. And because of that, they were able to go to mobile sooner. Yep. I think that'll happen with CBDCs in countries that don't have any good domestic payment infrastructure. Speaking of,
1: of the ways in which countries actually adopt crypto, we know, of course, that El Salvador has taken on this massive um, uh, experiment to accept Bitcoin payments. And that seems to have sort of um, somewhat backfired. Um, do you hmm. think that the way in which com- uh, countries can better embrace crypto is by do, uh, engaging in CBDCs as opposed to actually um, one specific crypto like Bitcoin? Or what, what are some of the lessons that you can glean from the ways in which El Salvador has try to adopt Bitcoin?
2: So the El Salvador experiment is ongoing, but it's, so far it's not going well. Um, there were sort of two parts to it. One was that they just basically bought Bitcoin as part of their national reserve, but now the price of Bitcoin is a lot lower than their average price. The other idea was to uh, use the Lightning Network, which is the secondary infrastructure built on top of Bitcoin that allows things like cheap or practically free micropayments on Bitcoin. And, and yeah. using that for things like remittances, um, because like such a, I don't remember the numbers, but some substantial portion of El Salvador's GDP relies on remittances from uh, expats in places like the US and like anyone who's ever looked at remittances knows that the fees are prohibitive. right? So if you can find some technological solution that would have a material impact uh, on everything. None of this so far is going well, partly because just El Salvador is a very poor country with very bad infrastructure. So for them to try to like, roll out a uh, a Bitcoin wallet to all of the citizens in the span of, uh, you know, six months or something like I think the the idea was better than the implementation. Huh. Um, that said, I do think, and and I actually think for remittances, stable coins might play a much, much more prominent role down the road than Bitcoin. And we're already seeing this, like in places where digital dollars are as popular as Bitcoin is for things like people escaping local inflation or making cross-border payments. Uh, For Bitcoin itself, uh, one of the theories that I try to hash out in the book is that I have a hunch that on a long enough timeline, Bitcoin will become a global reserve currency, not the global reserve currency, but we're entering this period where de dollarization is underway and and things that happened just with like the Russia-Ukraine situation where the U.S. effectively confiscated Russia's dollar foreign exchange reserves, or what happened uh, not long before that, where we did the same thing to the Central Bank of Afghanistan, that's gonna turn a lot of heads globally. And I think a lot of um, sovereign wealth funds and foreign central banks are gonna say, you know, we think we're saving in dollars, but how reliable are those dollars if uh, anytime we run afoul of American foreign policy, the US government just takes our savings away. And, and there's no clear alternative to that of like going to the Euro or the renminbi, because then the Europeans or the Chinese would just politicize the reserves. Mm-hmm. And Bitcoin, because it is decentralized and censorship resistant and apolitical, is the only thing other than gold that can serve that kind of a role. But it's a hell of a lot easier to use in payments than
0: bars of gold is. You know, I always think of uh, Bitcoin, actually anything that's proof of work as having too much of a limitation in terms of... uh, or it can be problematic in, in terms of uh, energy usage. Uh, I mean, just huge amounts of energy for very few transactions, and and also uh, throughput. Uh, so I always thought um, any solution long term would have to be a, a proof of stake. Uh, am I am I missing a few things there? I wouldn't say you're missing anything. I I actually,
2: I I generally agree for most things. There are many nuances to this discussion, which I'm not going to bore your, your listeners with. Like Bitcoin mining is increasingly using renewables. There's a positive role that Bitcoin mining could play in the building out of a much more green grid because Bitcoin mining is what they call a grid stabilizer. It's like the very rare high energy and profitable activity that you can turn on and off uh, in a second like you can't do that with things like aluminum smelting or air conditioning so there's an argument that you will actually have more renewables installed in certain places because they will co-locate mining there and because that allows them to make money when they have excess power they're just gonna build more wind farms or solar panels or nuclear plants or whatever. And then when there's high demand and there isn't excess power, they just turn off the mining. Um, but despite all of that, the environmental um, hit is currently significant. So proof of stake where uh, you don't have any of that, a proof of stake network uses arbitrary energy like any other computer network, Solves that problem, could be more scalable. Um, However, the question with proof of stake is whether it can lead to a certain kind of centralization that proof of work cannot. Because the nice thing with Bitcoin is that power is very diffuse. The miners have some power. People who own the coins have some power. Exchanges have some power. The nodes have a lot of power. And you can't really do anything without all of them agreeing, which almost never happens, which is why, for better or for worse, Bitcoin never changes. With proof of stake, the coin holders are the most likely candidates to be validators. And then the most the biggest coin holders are going to be exchanges and custodians. So it could lead to more centralization. Um, We'll see, we're going to have a great experiment on this when Ethereum finally migrates to proof of stake sometime in the next few months. There are many proof of stake blockchains, it just hasn't been tried at scale. Um, My hunch is that proof of work will be good for Bitcoin and stay that way, but not good for anything else.
1: So before we move on from the energy question as well, um, you mentioned in your book that people trust in coins because they require a lot of power to produce. Can you elaborate what you mean by that?
2: Yeah. You know, if we go back to like the beginning of time, people have been using scarce items uh, that are either really hard to find or require work or power to produce at stores of value. And the reason why is obvious, like you know, gold, you got to get it out of the ground and there isn't that much of it. Um, whereas like if you wanted to say like, let's just use leaves as money, like there are too many trees and new leaves come all the, the time. Leaf there would coins? be no scarce. I'm going to start a leaf Uh, coin. Yeah. So that's why money doesn't grow on trees. Um, And even it's interesting, like in societies that use less scarce things like stone or shells as money, there was a tendency to have to do something to them, like fashion them into a certain shape or string a bunch of shells into a necklace, you know, a primitive kind of proof of work because it's easier to trust that something has value if work has gone into it. And that's the basic idea behind Bitcoin. Like people trust its coins because they you required a lot of power to create. Of course, the alternative is what we have today, which is you can just trust a central bank or a commercial bank or a FinTech. Like most of the world's money is digital already, right? It's just not very few payments in the grand scheme of things happen in cash. It's just that you have to trust these very powerful intermediaries to preserve the integrity of these systems, which works in some ways and tragically fails in others. What's interesting about Bitcoin is that it is digital money that rides a fancy kind of database, but the trust comes from the work of proof of work.
0: Well, uh, it's not the work itself. It's the the result that it's unhackable, right? Uh, But if proof of stake can replicate that, Uh, uh, that uh, security that that's that's the benefit right you can get there without the work
2: yes in both cases the idea is that since we're not going to put a corporation or government in charge of running the thing and validating transactions uh, we're going to have volunteers do it and That's a crazy idea to begin with, like this is the internet and we're going to let anonymous volunteers do the most important word of work of deciding which transactions are good and which aren't. Um, In order to make that trustworthy, both proof of work and proof of stake require the minor validator to have skin in the game, to sort of prove honest intent. In Bitcoin, proof of work, it's basically like, please waste some money on electricity. And it is in a way, waste. The um, hashing that the miners are doing has nothing to do with the actual like validating that John paid Steve want Bitcoin. In proof of stake, the idea is, well, if we want them to spend money, why, why, why have them wasted on electricity that's bad for the environment? Why don't we just have them put the money in escrow with the network, and then if they do a bad job, then we'll penalize them and confiscate their escrow. So I understand
1: the use cases of Bitcoin for, you know, for, for central banking, for global trade as well. I'm still a bit ke- skeptical about the uses for the technology, though for consumers, especially with payments, right? Um, you mentioned also in, in your book, and this is something that I, that I complain about all, all, all the time if you're a, a, a listener of the show, is that I hate that um, despite policies advising companies to not do this, if you go to a coffee shop, they usually have a minimum payment for credit cards mm. because of the high interchange fees, right? The visa and, and all the payment processors charged, right? I think in the U.S. it's something like 1.78% for any debit card tra- transaction. Um, but however, if you go to Europe, it's, it's much lower. I, I know that in, in France, the interchange fee is actually just 0.21%. So, um, w- wouldn't this mean that the solution to our awful micropayment system not, now is not in introducing a, a new technology, but rather in changing policy so that um, these rent seeking players in the space are not able to exert as much influence uh, uh, in, in, in terms of how much we pay for a service if we use a card? Uh, In other words, isn't the solution to all this stuff just better policy and not just creating a new new technical solution for all this stuff?
2: That is a solution, but I would argue it's a suboptimal solution because the cost consideration is actually one part of why I think stable coins are the future of all fiat payments. In fact, I think like in 10 years, we'll just call them dollars in the same way that I don't call my paypal balance paypal dollars i just call them dollars so the cost thing is is one because like unlike a visa run network uh, a blockchain you pay for security you're not paying for rent seeking um but there are some other benefits to stable coins that you'll never get on like even if you cap interchange at, at 10 basis points um and, and to get a little bit more nuance on this credit card companies like visa don't actually process payments they promise they, they process promises like when you swipe your credit card the store does not get money it gets an assurance from visa that the money will eventually come to their bank could be a day later could be a few days later that's suboptimal with stable coins you get it's like getting paid get.
0: by steve sometimes actually <laughs> <laughs> only sometimes
2: <laughs> um but some other benefits of stable coins bigger ones actually than just the cost one is that they're programmable that uh, because they ride this natively programmable infrastructure, you can have smart contracts. Now, credit card companies could also make credit card transactions programmable. But that's to me, is like not really programmable because it lacks the trust assurances of a smart contract. The beauty of a smart contract on a decentralized network like Ethereum is that it's basically guaranteed to do whatever it's programmed to do. The miners who execute it don't know or don't care who the counterparties are. They don't know or don't care what the transaction is. They're just executing code in a, what we call trustless fashion. Trustless is this counterintuitive term that something is trustless. It means you can trust the outcome without having to trust um, the whoever's involved in the process. So credit cards will never be that. And I think that programmability has already unleashed more innovation in DeFi and crypto in the last couple of years that we've seen in fintechs in the last decade. And that's not a knock against fintechs. It's just the quality of the infrastructure. And then lastly, there's this funny thing with payments today, which is like we have networks and rails for money, which only allow the movement of money. They literally don't allow the movement of everything, anything else, which is kind of weird. Like imagine someone came to you and be like, Here's this internet, you can only send email, but you can't send text messages or visit websites. You're like, well, it's data. Why can't all the data, you know, the beauty of the internet is all the data is on one platform. Well, the beauty of a blockchain is you can have all the stores of value on one platform. So you can have your dollars or euros on the same platform that you have your rewards and your coupons and your NFTs and your stocks and your invoices, and the deed to your house and encrypted messaging, literally it's like omni-asset. And I think that is sort of a killer app, both for consumers and merchants, that you can now have like one wallet that stores all the things. And now if you're a merchant and you need to, or, or business interacting with other businesses, you have one network that lets you interchange all the things.
0: Yeah, it sounds like we're, we're still a ways from uh, getting away from the, the volatility that would make that possible. E- even uh, with uh, things like you said, like stable coins, uh, when, when people see things like the collapse of Luna, uh, the Three Arrows Capital liquidation, Celsius going out of business, uh, filing bankruptcy. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think I see a lot of people's hands getting burned and just kind of shying away. Uh, and and that's uh, it, it just seems like we're a, a few steps, a few collapses still uh, from the stability, the reliability that would engender that trust. It, it It seems like we're we're not close to that world yet.
2: I agree. and and the, the you're certainly you're spot on that things like what happened with Luna and three hours capital slows progress. Uh, risks regulatory blowback, makes adoption have to happen on a longer timeline. Um, But I would say, if you are an entrepreneur, if you want to be someone who actually benefits from the transformation that I highlight in the book, you can't wait until this stuff, is, all these problems are fixed and all the you know the grifters and the criminals are taken care of and the prices are volatile and the infrastructure works. By then it will be too late and whoever started building whatever their solution was today is going
0: to be the winner. Do you see as some regulation as speeding up that process towards trust? Absolutely.
2: Uh, I think um, to the extent that, first of all, like, a lot of the projects that blew up like three arrows capital or celsius just in the last couple of months these are not DeFi, right these are like banks it's kind of ironic because celsius's whole like marketing was based on like banks are not your friend but celsius itself was a bank
0: right celsius was a method to to bet
2: yeah and, and it was it was like a not not that it's a method. I mean, there are ways to bet. There are decentralized finance protocols that let you do almost anything you could do with Celsius, but they're trustless. They're operated by code. They're fully transparent. They're decentralized and run by a community. Celsius was none of these things. To me, Celsius was a bad bank, p- potentially a criminal one, run by tech people who don't know anything about banking. And who a- don't and have like- FDIC insurance right so if you're going to have if you're going to be that then i think regulations are good um i personally like think that you more we need more of those kind of borrowing and lending services to come from actually decentralized protocols where you don't need traditional sec based regulation because everything's regulated by code and and you can go and read the code and there's no surprises like there was with the celsius or three hours capital so I think that kind of regulating away irresponsible companies like that will help adoption. Um, I also think in general, most people forget like to the extent crypto is all about investing and numbers go up and and like positive returns. Most of the world's capital is controlled by um, institutions like hedge funds, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and institutions as a rule do not go into unregulated markets. So more regulation will pave the way for greater institutional adoption, not just them investing money, but them actually being like, oh, you know what, we can use this infrastructure to do what we already do.
0: But uh, if if this is really uh, international, or if you don't even know where something some of these things are coming from, you could have like, I guess you could have like a but like that that squid coin thing came out and who knows where that was from uh and and some fraud you know that was totally a, a bogus coin um or or you know whatever the scam is uh but if it it can it be regulated if it's uh, if you don't know where it is you don't know where it's coming from uh it's beyond uh who knows uh whose jurisdiction yeah. um isn't it uh uh Make it easier to to well, there's so many different ways. Uh, manipulate, um, uh, uh, have false information, do all these kinds of things uh, outside of the scope of a regulated environment that that doesn't allow or at least punishes. It can punish uh, that type of behavior.
2: So the thing to remember is like fraud is fraud, and a scam is a scam, and money laundering is money laundering. Um, so a lot of the existing rules will still work to prosecute these, the the people who perpetuate these kinds of scammy things. Um, The other thing is there's a lot about the infrastructure of crypto that actually makes law enforcement and preventing illicit activity easier, right? Like the total transparency of what's happening, for example. Um, So... I there's this general uh, theme that a lot of the skeptics point to that like crypto is an enabler of bad behavior in a way that the existing system
0: is not. First of all, like Silk a- Road kind of aftertaste and yes, yes, but, but, even right.
2: all of it. But like even that's funny because like you know people are still buying drugs on the internet, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> and they were doing it before Bitcoin.
0: I, I have no um, idea what you're talking about. I have nothing to yeah. do with
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, people always ask me, like, what about the money laundering in the in crypto? And I point them out, like, what about the money laundering through your bank? And they look at me with funny, They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, go look up the stats. There is two to four trillion dollars worth of money that gets laundered through the existing banking system, despite draconian rules that end up harming the unbanked and remittances and marginalized communities so like there is this thing with crypto where it's like the shiny new thing is always scary like you remember well i don't know how old you guys are i remember when it was like oh you only the only people who needed pagers were drug dealers and doctors i had a pager in middle school absolutely It's quite useful,
0: actually. Yeah. Well, we won't say which one of those you were, Steve.
2: Right, (laughs) and we won't say why. But there was, uh, in my first book, I actually had the, uh, I might have it in this one, too. There was a headline in the New York Times that was something like, New York City public schools banning beeper, comma, tool of the drug trade. And I love the irony of that, because now, like, every public school student walks in every day with a mobile communication device that is 10,000 times more powerful and like the world has not ended. In fact, I I would guess parents, principals, and cops prefer it that way because it makes them all easier to do what they want to do. So I think with crypto, yes, there are some ways that it makes it easier for certain kinds of people to do something bad, but then there are other ways in which it makes it harder, or at least it makes it uh, it enables more informed users from determining what the scam is versus the legitimate project. And I think net-net, the uh, re-architecture to this technology will actually make it harder for shady people to get away with doing shady things.
0: You hear that, Steve?
2: Mm.
1: I, 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 this, this is loud not and clear. the answer. <laughs> loud and clear loud and clear um uh uh, speaking of of shady people doing shady things as well what's your take on the whole collapse of you know three arrows capital voyager we talked about celsius as well and sort of um we've seen the dominoes fall in the industry now um is is it actually is it ultimately a good thing for the crypto space that now we have maybe some accountability and some skepticism built into the system um and do you think we'll continue this sort of crypto winter now or is this the bottom of, uh, of, of, of the, the adoption scale and sort of things will ramp back up from there? Or what, what's sort of your take on, on the outlook?
0: And what of, will of the this? price of Bitcoin be a <laughs> right. year from now?
2: <laughs> as, I, as I tell my students who then usually like shake their heads and boo, we don't give investment advice. I am not an yes. investment advisor. However, I am willing to sell you an NFT for $10,000. All
0: right, time. this interview is done. We're done here. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> um, the, the thing with the three arrows capital Voyager Celsius, there is this unfortunate tendency in crypto to dismiss all of the accumulated knowledge that came before, particularly in a financial context. And I think this is something that has led to the industry being burned again and again. Um, you know, personally, I think there is a lot of wisdom and professionalism and expertise that's built up through centuries of banking or decades of fintech. And it would behoove the crypto industry to actually learn those lessons and not just dismiss them. like. If they had, then they would have realized that massive uncollateralized leverage to a single entity that's only been around for like two years. And the leader is on Twitter saying like, I think Bitcoin will only ever go up from this day. Well, maybe don't let that guy a billion dollars. So I I think like, again, right. So that some level of maturation, and I'm actually, I'm looking forward to strong prosecution. I think Without naming names, uh, some of, some people involved were like actual criminals who deserve to go to jail because they literally, there's a difference between taking dumb risks and, and being irresponsible and stealing other people's money. And I think that happened here too. So that will lead to a more mature and cleaner crypto industry. It'll probably lead to more regulations for better or for worse. Um, in terms of the timeline though, um, I'm not sure. I, I, there are people in crypto who think like this bear market is going to be as long and as brutal as the one that lasted from early 2018 to mid 2020. Um, maybe, I, I think there's some there's some good here though, which is that one, like we're, we are further along on the adoption scale than we were back then. There are more things in crypto that are sort of proven and not just proof of concept. Uh, like
0: like what i I've been dying to um, give more examples and what well, in 2016 2017 I, I thought a lot of these identity things would be further along or in terms of mass adoption uh, and, and I'm still waiting um, but but what what are, are are there examples of these enterprise solutions uh, or or consumer use i I, I uh, it is it is taking uh, maybe i'm impatient but it is taking longer than i expected at that time
2: me too and i actually it's funny you you you're definitely og john if you remember like the hope about the identity application which which i've that been was hopeful a big deal. for for years yeah and and it's still like if you spend 10 minutes looking up how horrible digital identity is today any, anybody who's had to like put in the 286 username and password for the last week knows how terrible that is, or knows about the hacks and, and the surveillance and all that. Um, and there is, for what it's worth, the digital identity idea has been sort of like rejuvenated just in the past couple of months with some interesting, unique approaches to it using NFTs. But I, I share your uh, impatience. If you asked me three, four years ago, I would have said we'd probably be further along on a lot of things, but a couple of examples of actual adoption. I think NFTs have been huge and I'm not actually a big NFT person. You know, I have friends who've been like collecting JPEGs and flipping monkey pictures and stuff like that. I have not done any of that. However, from my experience, NFTs expanded the sort of like the TAM of crypto more than anything since Bitcoin itself, because the idea of the digital collectible just resonates with a lot of people. Um, scarce digital art resonates with a lot of people. And you know, it, like everything in crypto, it's probably a bubble that's gonna burst and everything will be down 99% and there'll be rug pulls and scams and blah, blah, blah. But I think we've literally unlocked a new business model for artists and creators and communities who've been sort of like screwed by the digital revolution since the day people like me downloaded napster uh 22 years ago so much free um, music yeah <laughs> um and, and like it's... you know they're musicians now steve that are like selling digital merch and it's a significant source of revenues for them um there are artists who prefer to work in digital that can be like yeah i make stuff in whatever software I use. And then I sell five limited edition copies and they can sell their art in a way that has a built-in royalty back to the artist. So if, if one of these JPEGs becomes the next Jackson Pollock or something and trades for a hundred million dollars, it won't be just like hedge fund dudes in a pissing contest who benefit from it. Every time one of these NFTs trades hands, the original artist will be instantly sent 10 million dollars. Um, and, And we're seeing all of these big brands and big companies, there's a lot of experimentation going on. I don't think we've necessarily hit on the right model of like how musicians or Disney or electronic arts interact with NFTs. But I think this is a clear use case that would literally not be possible if not for blockchain technology. So, so the use case is there, but I think that actually the adoption hasn't quite caught up to
1: it. I know that um, you also mentioned in your book that crypto and blockchain have been used to reinvigorate the art, music, collectibles, and gaming spaces. Um, but at least from my perspective, it seems like that's, that promise has sort of fizzled out. We, I noticed that um, recently four of the, of the five NFT collectibles by trading value, and I'm talking here about Loot, CryptoPunks, Board, Board of Yacht Club, and Art Blocks, have seen the declines ranging from, from 44 to 82%. Um, is that has has the promise of NFTs as a savior of the art world been sort of overblown, and do you think the market could actually recover and get to a space where maybe it can fulfill its promise that you know in terms of paying royalties back to the to the artist, um, artists being able to have another income stream and all the other sort of use cases that we saw you know six to eighteen months ago?
2: I think the promise of NFTs as a get rich quick scheme have been overblown, and and like the the people that were. the the literal technical industry term is aping into the 18th ripoff board a project for no other reason that they thought they could flip it a week later uh, for more money and a lot of those people got burned and I'm fine with that I have no sympathy for that kind of speculative nonsense anyway but so the, the volume numbers are more an indication of like that and there's a long history of anything new comes out all the way back to like telegrams and railroads. First, there's just speculative fervor. It ends badly for the first wave of investors. But then that fervor laid out the infrastructure uh, that allows the legitimate players and use cases to benefit. I think now we're in that phase where there's like both enough easy ways to mint NFTs and both like enough new consumers who took on the horrible painstaking process of installing MetaMask and buying ETH to buy some NFT, that we're now going to see these like more sustainable, legitimate use cases from everything from like your quiet neighborhood artists to some of the world's most famous artists. I think that's gonna continue regardless of what's happening with trading volumes or even the price of Bitcoin.
0: And uh, if you wanna hear more of this interview, uh, you can buy the Fintech Newscast NFT going for only $5,000 right now. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining it's us. A steal. Uh, very interesting conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that's Omid Malikan, adjunct professor at Columbia Business School and author of the new book, uh, Rearchitecting Trust. Trust. Uh, please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening.